All right. Well, let's, um, let's open up God's Word this morning to Galatians chapter 5. And we also want to, Galatians chapter 5, and also opening up to the Second London Confession, chapter 9, and we'll be reading paragraphs 4 and 5 there. So we will start with that, with the confession, paragraphs 4 and 5, and chapter 9. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet, so is that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. And then paragraph 5, This will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. And then Galatians chapter 5. We'll start reading at verse 16 to verse 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so reads God's infallible and inerrant word. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we very earnestly ask of you that you will give us much grace 
in these next few moments to open your word, to understand your scriptures, and to understand what our confession of faith confesses as to the truth of your word as it concerns what we are describing as free will in grace and in glory. Lord, we thank you for the past two weeks in this study on free will and the illumination that has been given us by the Spirit. We pray for greater layers of understanding today that will better equip us to understand our freedom, our liberty in Christ. For his sake and in his name we pray. Amen. We return this morning to our present study in chapter 9 of the Second London Confession, which will be our final study in this chapter on the doctrine of free will. For the past two weeks, we have considered the teaching of paragraphs 1 through 3. In paragraph 1, we looked at the general statement the Second London Confession expresses about free will. Here we saw that God has invested mankind with the faculty to make real choices. These choices are not fixed in any way by biological determinism or psychological syndromes to undermine the validity and culpability of the choices we make. But every choice we do make is a choice of our own personal volition. Furthermore, due to such a real liberty we have in making real choices, we're also responsible and accountable for every choice we make. This is why in the final judgment, God's word states plainly that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Every choice then we have made in our earthly life will be answered for in the final judgment. But as free as our will is to make the choices we do, all such choices are limited by our nature. In other words, there isn't a choice we make which emanates from something outside of who we are by nature. Our free will is not a separate island in our human makeup that works independent of our human nature. Rather, every choice that proceeds from us is a choice that originates from who and what we are by nature. Now, following paragraph one with his general statement concerning free will, paragraph two then took us to consider man's will before the fall. This paragraph, along with paragraphs three through five, are giving us snapshots, as it were, of man's will through the different stages of redemptive history. So in paragraph two, as just mentioned, we have man's will before the fall. And here we see Adam and Eve as they were originally created, as morally perfect, but with the ability to lose that perfection by sinning against God. Thus, what we see concerning man's will prior to the fall into sin is not only the liberty to choose, but even having the ability to enter sin or not enter sin. But our first parents, as we know and have ourselves suffered the consequences thereof, chose to sin against God and thereby bringing the human race under the dominion of sin. And with the fact of the fall, we then moved on to paragraph 3, thus considering man's will after the fall. 
And as I said last week, this paragraph is more critical to understand under this subject and doctrine of free will than any paragraph in the whole of this chapter. One reason why this paragraph is so crucial to our understanding is because it is clarifying carefully what is called moral inability. This means that while man in his sinful state may retain the ability to feed the hungry, build hospitals, and clean the streets, yet when it comes to doing that which puts him right with God, he has neither the will nor the ability for such things. In fact, nature man is altogether averse from that good that accompanies This is why our Lord said of all sinners in John 6.44 and in verse 65, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws me. When it comes to the truth of man's moral inability as a sinner, Jesus says here in essence, will, there is no truth more needed to hear than moral inability. Move on to conclude our study of this chapter by considering paragraphs 4 and 5. Here we will see free will in grace and then free will in glory. Beginning first, let's consider free will in grace. Reading once again, paragraph 4. When God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace... He frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet, so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but 
does also will that which is evil. Since paragraph 3 ended with the dreadful fact that man in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto, it is only right when opening the paragraph on free will and grace that it begins with when God converts a sinner. But what happens when God converts a sinner? We're told very precisely that God translates the converted sinner into a state of grace whereby he frees him from his natural bondage under sin. Something most radical happens to the sinner whom God saves. First of all, they are delivered into a new spiritual domain, which the second London describes as a state of grace. Here, paragraph 4 references Colossians 1.13, which assures every Christian that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're reminded of two things in this single verse. On the one hand, when we were unregenerate, we lived under the ruling power of darkness. Our will was only to sin in open rebellion against God, and the devil was our spiritual father. Yet on the other hand, when God saved us, he rescued us from that kingdom of darkness and transported us into a new realm to colonize as his people under the kingdom rule of his son. So while we continue to live in this fallen world, we do not live anymore as those who are of this fallen world. This is why we cannot, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we cannot live as Christians under the same yoke of direction, counsel, fellowship, worship, and drive as unbelievers. Our home is not this present sinful world. Second of all, when God converted us, he freed us from our natural bondage under sin. And here, paragraph 4 cites John 8, 36, where Jesus, our Lord, makes his great salvific declaration. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free from what? Free from our enslavement to sin. Free from the price, power, penalty, and punishment of sin. And this freedom has been bought and secured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Jesus lays great stress and emphasis on the astonishing and amazing fact that he alone, the Son, Hawihas, sets you free. There is no other way, there is no other source, there is no other agency by which God frees us from our natural bondage under sin than the person and work of his eternal son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, with such a freedom from sin's enslavement and a new life lived in Christ under his rule and power, paragraph 4 then goes on to state the joyful reality of the Christian life on this side of glory. And by his grace alone, enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Since we are saved 
By God's grace alone, we therefore live by the same grace each and every day as his people. And by God's grace enabling us, we are able freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Where this statement emanates from is Philippians 2.13, where it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is important, however, to connect this verse to what precedes it in Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There are no two verses in all the Bible which captures so clearly the great work of the believer's sanctification than Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Here is the lifelong process of Christian living. On the one side, there is our work. Our work. We're commanded to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This imperative is calling every believer in Christ to work out the reality of what God's saving grace has done and continues to do. The sense of the verb translated work out is to work on to the finish. As a present tense verb, this is the daily work. The daily work of a Christian. So then daily we pray. Daily we read the word. Daily we study the word, obey the word. Daily we put off the deeds of the old man and put on the deeds of the new man. The Christian life is just that. It's a life. It's a life. There's no such thing as a part-time Christian. No such thing. There's no such thing, no such thing as a Sunday-only Christian. Those kinds of people aren't Christians. They're hypocrites. They are hypocrites. They are pretenders. This is because a true Christian is someone who is daily working out their own salvation. And it is with a fear and trembling to be at it with faithfulness and carefulness. Not every once in a while. Not once or twice a year. Every day. Daily. Daily. But on the other side of this work in sanctification and of our work in sanctification, there is also God's work. There's also God's work. And here is where Philippians 2.13 comes in. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When Paul commands us, in verse 12, to work out our own salvation. It is most significant that the verb to work out is used with a reciprocal middle voice. A reciprocal middle voice. This means then that as we're working out our salvation, 
It is in direct concert with and total reliance upon what God is already working in us. We do not live the Christian life as independents, as little mavericks, little rogues, carving out our own way to glory. No. Instead, all our willing and doing for God's pleasure, his good pleasure, all of that is exclusively the result of God's empowering grace. What is it that our Lord says about that? In John 15, in verse 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And nothing means nothing. We do not have what it takes in and of ourselves to bear the fruit that glorifies God. You can't do it on your own. And so we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling only in response to what God is already working in us. You're working out what God is already working in. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. So, this means, and this frankly should be very freeing for all of us as Christians to hear this, what I'm about to say. We cannot obey God without God's grace enabling us to obey. Now, it's amazing that there are some people in the church who would disagree with that. That is shocking. But there are those people. But the truth of Scripture that we are looking at here, both in Philippians and in what we just cited from John chapter 15, makes it most plain and clear. We do not have the power, we do not have the ability to obey God apart from God's grace. You can't. And this is why the verb translated works in verse 13 of Philippians 2 is a present tense verb emphasizing the energy and effective power of God himself working in his people to sanctify them all the way to glory. There is no other way we can possibly live the Christian life. It is a life of absolute dependence on God in all things. In all things. However, Though Christians are truly enabled freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good, as our confession states, yet 
The confession goes on to say, yet, so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly, nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. No Christian on this side of glory has reached glory. There remains in every believer the down drag of indwelling sin, whereby the good we will to do we do not, and the evil we hate that we do. This is the language of Paul's spiritual autobiographical confession in Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25, where at least five verses from this passage are referenced here in this clause of paragraph 4. In this portion of Romans 7, Paul uses both emphatic pronouns and present tense verbs to make it clear that his daily life as a Christian working out his salvation by God's grace was not without an internal, unceasing conflict. Despite how strong and earnest his aim and ambitions were to please and obey God in all things, yet Paul found in himself, according to Romans 7.21, a law that when he wanted to do right, evil, evil lies close at hand. And this evil, this evil that he speaks of is the presence of remaining sin or what the New Testament Elsewhere describes as the flesh. The flesh. What we read about at the beginning from Galatians chapter 5. What is this? The flesh. This is that part of us which is our unredeemed humanity. Which wages a constant war against everything which has been made new about us in Christ. This is why Christians sin. This is why you sin, Christian. The flesh. Indwelling sin. This is why Christians can do nothing perfectly or will only that which is good and pleasing to God. So let's get this. Let's get it, okay? Till we reach glory, till we reach glory, there will be no weekend getaways. There will be no vacations from this fight we have with the flesh. It is a fight to the finish. It is a fight to the finish. This is why we must always be about the holy business of working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This is why according to Romans 8.13, we must be always mortifying these sins and carnal desires that remain in us. There is no coasting into the kingdom of God. There's only fighting and war. How many Christians do not get this? 
They don't get it. They do not get what John Owen wrote in his classic work on the mortification of sin. Listen to this. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But sin is always active when it seems to be the most quiet. And its waters are often deep when they are calm. We should therefore fight against it and be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is the least suspicion. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. Lust is still tempting to and conceiving sin. It is called sin which clings so closely. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, and always seducing and tempting. Who can say that he has ever had anything to do with God or for God which indwelling sin has not tried to corrupt? This battle will last more or less all our days. If sin is always acting, we are in trouble if we're not always mortified. You will fight this fight to your death. And let me also stress this. As someone who has been following Christ for 35 years, the longer you grow in the faith, the more you will see of your sin. The more you'll see it. You will, you will your eyes, your vision will be more and more enhanced with a greater clarity, with a greater sharpness to see just how much depravity remains in you, though you are redeemed. You will not be like one man who said to me, the fool that he was, a man who was reaching his 80s and said, well, I find in my life that I sin less. And I said, well, actually what you're finding is how blind you really are. And he was terribly blind. When Paul the Apostle wrote Romans 7... Do you know when he wrote it? He didn't write it as a new Christian. He wrote it as a man who had been a Christian for many, 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 many years. He wrote it as a very mature, seasoned, veteran Christian. It's the new Christians who don't see much of their sin. The older you get in the faith, the more you're going to see it. And the more you're going to be awakened to the fact that there's still a battle. There's still a war that's going on. And it just seems that the older I get in Christ, in the faith, in this walk, the more intensified the battle becomes. It doesn't lessen. It becomes more. However, 
saying that and uh, building up your self-esteem, we are not helpless in this fight. Now, here's the good news. We are not helpless in the fight. We war from a position of victory. One for us by Christ and applied to us by the Spirit. This is why Romans 6 and verse 12 commands us to not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Jesus has set us free from sin's bondage. So we therefore have the freedom and the power in Christ to say no to sin. And to say no, not just with words, but with power. Supernatural power. That is... The power to resist sin's temptations which proceed from the flesh. This means, and this may be so shocking for some Christians, we do not have to give in to our remaining corruptions. You don't have to. You really don't. Because as Romans chapter 6 teaches us, We're not slaves of sin anymore. No more. If you're a slave of sin, you're not even a Christian. You're not born again. You're still in the kingdom of darkness. You haven't been translated into the kingdom of God's beloved son if you are still a slave of sin. Read very carefully Romans chapter 6 to really get that. You're no longer a slave of sin. So, while we'll never be able to achieve sinless perfection before glory, yet this doesn't mean that remaining sin will always win. By God's enabling grace, we can and will obey God Truly, though not perfectly. There will be sin and disobedience in the Christian life, which is why there must be daily repentance and a renewing of grace to keep pressing on to glory. Commenting on this truth and reality, one writer said this, So then man in the state of grace gains new ability to choose what is good but continues to choose sin and imperfection because of his remaining corruption. The Christian lives in the profound tension of the already and the not yet. He has already experienced pardon and regeneration and is right now a new creation, but he also knows that he is not yet all that he shall be. That's the reality we live in right now, every day, as believers. The already, the not yet. That's the tension. But one day, praise God, the tension, the conflict, and struggle against remaining sin will cease. One day it will cease, and it is to that subject 
the chapter 9 closes in paragraph 5. So let us consider this very, very briefly. Free will in glory. Free will in glory. Reading paragraph 5. This will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. This closing paragraph, which is more like a closing sentence, is the great hope and joy of every Christian in their earthly pilgrimage. That when we leave this world and enter glory, our will to choose shall be confirmed forever in true holiness. Unlike Adam and Eve, there will be no possibility to change what we shall become when we are perfected in the image of Jesus Christ. The world in sin, the devil with his schemes, and the flesh with its works for evil will have no more sway in the life of God's people in glory. While we enjoy now the fact that since penalty, punishment, and power has been broken and removed from us in Christ, yet in glory, and this is what we're really looking forward to, in glory, the very presence of sin within and without shall only be a distant memory. Gone forever and for good, never to return. This means then that in our glorified state, we will want good and we will be good and all our actions will flow out of that perfected nature. And all we can do now is merely imagine what that'll be like. Because none of us, none of us have tasted not even a smidgen of that experience. None of us. But it is the hope, it is the assurance, it is the certainty that we have as Christians, as believers in Christ, that all of the suffering that we experience because of sin, because of our own sin, because of the sins of others, that there is coming a day when that will no longer be a reality ever, ever again. And for new Christians, they haven't lived long enough in the faith to long for that, like those who are much older in the faith, who've had to put up with the tension of the already and the not yet. And they see the greater and the deeper conflicts of this. But as you do grow in the faith, as you do progress more and more in Christ where you see more and more of your sin 
It will cause your heart to cry out and to ache. Oh, Lord. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. You will long more for the glory that is promised. To be rid of all this. To be rid of all this. And this is why I have told some dear saints in the past who have lost their loved ones who were bona fide Christians and they have terribly missed their loved ones, I have said to them, well, understand this. If your loved one who's now in glory was, were given the choice to return here to you in your fallen condition in this fallen world, I can tell you right now what they'd say. No way. You need to come where I am because I am surely not going where you are. I'm done with that. I'm now in glory. And it's better than what I could have ever imagined. That's why this life is a mere shadow. It's just a shadow. The reality, the substance of real life is what's coming. In all of its fullness, when Christ returns and ushers in the new heavens and a new earth, and there will be no more sin. No more sin. I think as Christians we need to think more about that because the New Testament actually encourages us to look more for that than being so fixed on the here and the now. Because this is not all there is. We are just passing through. It's no wonder the scripture calls us pilgrims, aliens, strangers in this world. And we are because we belong to a different world, another world, a kingdom that's not of this world. That's what we're looking forward to. Let's pray. Our blessed Father... We are so grateful, Lord, to you, and we are not grateful enough of what you have prepared for us, of what Christ, your Son, has prepared for us, of what the Holy Spirit indwelling us is preparing us for with the glory that is coming, the glory that we shall inherit, the glory we shall enter one day. Blessed Father, forgive us as your people with how often we fix so much of our attention and our affections on the here and now of this fallen, passing world. Lord, we pray, may it please you to use this teaching today and what we have beheld from your holy scriptures this day to encourage us greater and enliven and enlarge our hearts with a deeper affection for what is in store for us when we are with you, when we are with Christ, when we shall see the Lord Jesus and beholding him in his glory and then see 
that we have been made like him, perfected in glory. And we owe it all, our great Lord and God, to you, to your grace, to your mercy, to your kindness, none of which we can ever take the credit for. We are truly saved by your grace alone. We thank you for these things. In the name of our Lord Jesus and for his sake we pray. Amen.